Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema, both in front of and behind the camera. We also like to revisit overlooked and underappreciated films and explore their pop cultural significance. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. You can check out Modern Superior for other great podcasts such as The AV Club, Recommended, See You Next Wednesday. There's also Surface Noise, A Frame Apart, and Flight School, just to name a few. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you here we'd love if you take a few minutes hop on itunes and give us a rating all feedback is great feedback and lastly we want to give a quick shout out to director gina prince blythewood who not only took the time out of her busy schedule to give our last episode episode 13 on beyond the lights a listen but she also reached out to us on twitter and just gave us a few kind words on how much she enjoyed our discussion so it's always nice to hear feedback from the filmmakers that we discuss and whose works we admire well it's also good that there's uh, just to i guess stroke an ego for a moment that our conversations are thoughtful I know that we both do our best and we're both smart dudes, but it's good to see that kind of appreciation shared. And Gina Prince-Bythewood has joined Sarah Adina Smith as well. Uh, Sarah Adina Smith, of course, who directed The Midnight Swim, which we talked about a few episodes back. So creators, directors, artists, thank you for your words. We love your work and we love hearing from you as well. So thank you again. And that thank you also goes out to the short filmmakers as well, because we also heard positive feedback from Randy Yang, whose short we discussed video. And when we did the Midnight Swim episode, we were also talking about Ben Brand's Life is Beautiful, and he also reached out to us as well and said how much he enjoyed the conversation. So whether it's feature or short, we love hearing the feedback. Now, this episode is slightly different than our usual routine, because Andrew, you brought a guest along with you today. Do you want to take a moment and introduce your guest? I certainly do. I would like to welcome to Changing Reels my longtime writing partner and sometimes crush, Mr. Kyle Miner. <laughs> Kyle, after that introduction, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you guys for having me. I'm happy to be here. Part of the reason that I wanted to have you on is, of course, we've been writing and recording podcasts together for, what, four years now? Five years? Yeah, four or five years, I think. So we've been doing this together for a long time, and it's actually um, the success of me and Kyle's framework that gave me the confidence to reach out to Courtney. Uh, Courtney, you can either feel good or bad about that, depending on how you are today. So you're saying I'm the other woman in this relationship. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but yeah, Kyle, thank you for joining me, because the movie we're going to be talking about here a bit later, uh, Upstream Color, is something that you wrote about for the website Can't Stop the Movies that we're still working on getting back. Hopefully it won't be too much longer. But what about you? What's your connection to movies other than the obvious one through me? I am at uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee right now in their media cinema digital studies department. So continuing to write about and work with movies there. Other than that, I've just been into movies all my life. You and I met years ago working at a theater which I think is appropriate. And now I'm here, and we're talking on the internet. I guess for your research right now, like, you're, you're going for a PhD, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. I don't know that I can speak super concisely about research, in terms of research that I'm doing right now, but one of the movies that I have written about and that I'm kind of thinking about research-wise is, uh, is Upstream Color, which we're going to talk about today. And I think the... Maybe we'll talk about this when we get to Upstream Color, but I think the kind of strange, like, indie, soft sci-fi genre, if you can situate Chain Carruth's movies in a genre successfully, I think is one that is both really interesting and that seems to have a lot of filmmakers within the last, I don't know, 10 years, maybe 10, 15 years, starting to contribute to these interesting genre bending, more like philosophical sci-fi, maybe, what are often kind of indie formats or short formats. So a lot of my research intersects with that area of movies, if that makes sense, without well, getting into it too Yeah, because we've had uh, movies like, I hated it, but it was, but I Origins, and the, yeah. the one I actually did love, Another Earth. Courtney, can you think of any kind of... Shoot, off the top of my head, no, because I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of the films we're going to be discussing today. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That's fair. If there's one thing that I think we can wrap our heads around, Courtney, it's that this conversation ends up being fruitful for Kyle's research. Maybe we get a, get a, get a little research rub, a little research credit, eh? <laughs> You're saying if an you, honorary PhD? If you can define what research rub means, then that is... <laughs> It'll, it'll be a late-night edition. Thank you guys for having me. 
Now, normally we like to start each week by highlighting two short films. So let's start with Andrews because, yeah, I'm still wrapping my head around this one. Um, <laughs> so if you would like to discuss your short and why you picked it. Sure thing. And part of the reason I, I picked this, it's Giant God Warrior Appears in Tokyo, which is both as descriptive and less helpfully descriptive a title as can be for this. The key thing I think to keep in mind with Giant God Warrior Appears in Tokyo is that one of the co-writers for it, um, Hideaki Anno, he is responsible for the Neon Genesis Evangelion franchise, which is no stranger to complex psychological issues in what may be seen as a kid's format, in this case, anime. One of the cool bits of synergy, I actually completely forgot that Giant God Warrior Appears in Tokyo, is a Studio Ghibli production. So this kind of aids what we were talking about a few weeks ago with the Red Turtle and how Studio Ghibli is really experimenting beyond that in-house style that they've perfected. So, Giant God Warrior appears in Tokyo, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to stop myself saying the full title each time. So, <laughs> it's straightforward. Uh, people are going about their daily lives. A giant god warrior appears in the sky and then saunters around for a moment before starting to destroy everything and bringing other gods down with him, or her, or it. There's not much in the way of explanation, and that's one of the things that I really dig about this, is it's almost funny how nonchalant a lot of the passerbys and citizens in Tokyo are, how they are reacting to this. Another reason that this kind of feels like a joke is the way that the director, Shinji Higuchi, who's also responsible for the recent Shin Godzilla, which I've heard a lot of good things about, switches from kind of like a documentary street-level style to this rough, like almost Gumby-esque animation style at points. Like, there's one shot of this little dog that looks almost like a Lego in its up-and-down motions as it's barking at this giant thing that's appeared. And there's kind of a dark humor to the god himself, or itself, when it starts walking around and there are just all these little explosions at its feet before it realizes, oh, okay, time to attack, and then the remaining gods come down to lay waste to everything. So there's this nice surreal bent to it with the frequent cuts to the uh, Japanese text and then back. And also the way that the citizens keep drawing their attention to their screens instead of this gigantic thing that is laying waste to them. Yeah, I kind of wanted to do something that was, like, I guess, of a little bit of a change of pace. Something that was darkly lighthearted in its own way and... This is what I stumbled on. Yeah, this one, I don't know. I wasn't a fan of this film, and partly because at least the version that I saw didn't have subtitles. So it's pretty much just watching the action play out. And I'm at that point in my life now where I need more than just seeing cool kaiju characters for me to be truly enthralled in a piece. So like the, I thought the special effects were great. The characters designs, as long as you weren't looking at the God straight on, I thought were good. I thought he looked a little goofy when you were looking at him directly, but I don't know. I, I was, I was wanting more and it reminded me about a conversation I was having during TIFF this year where I saw this upcoming film called Colosso by Nacho Vigalando, who I guess we're going to be talking about in the next episode with Time Crimes, but he has a kaiju-esque comedy starring Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis called Colosso, and it's kind of a similar thing about a creature magically appearing in Asia and wreaking havoc. And I remember talking to someone saying about how I found that film more inventive and more entertaining than a film like Pacific Rim, because I think we're getting to the point now where there's so much concept design that we're all enamored with that the actual story itself is starting to fall flat. And I took a lot of heat for saying I didn't really enjoy Pacific Rim, so maybe that's a little bias here as well. But I don't know. I was, I was looking for a little more in this one. Kyle, what did you think? So I'm glad you mentioned not having subtitles because <laughs> when I was watching this or trying to watch this, I started it and was like, uh, in the, in the uh, version that Andrew sent me and was like, oh, there's no subtitles and, uh, you know, figured I needed to just go to, to Daily Motion or Vimeo or whatever, whatever it was on. You know, maybe if I watched on the, on the platform, there'll be subtitles. And then there weren't. 
So I spent a while trying to find, having watched like the beginning of the movie, spent a while trying to find a subtitled version and in the process ended up accidentally finding context for this. Like Andrew, like you're talking about the fact that Studio Ghibli did it and the fact that this is a character from a Miyazaki movie from the 80s and then some of this other stuff. And eventually when I realized kind of looking at how other people seemingly were also searching for a version with subtitles that didn't seem to exist, I just watched it through and I was kind of with you, Courtney except that not having subtitles then lent more importance to some of the other intertextual context, if that makes sense. So as I was watching it, then all I'm thinking of is how this seems to not act as a parody, but how it has kind of like a semi-parodic tone of movies like Pacific Rim and things like that, and thinking about it as this extension of Miyazaki's other work and Studio Ghibli's other work, right? And when I got to the end, and and it really is just like a quick progression up to this apocalyptic event that made it kind of a, a weirdly interest like a str- like strangely more interesting i think than it would have been had i had subtitles and been viewing it more as its own self-contained film so i agree with you i think generally but the experience through which i ended up watching the whole movie made it a little bit more interesting in light of a lot of the things that you're saying how now we have this larger selection of films of this larger genre of technically really accomplished uh visually interesting or visually spectacular movies to look at situating it within that ended up making it a little bit more interesting for me i think i fall in between where the two of you are at maybe and what you both are talking about there is this kind of being a response to Pacific Rim, in a way, or at least more of a satirical take on the stuff in Pacific Rim. I enjoyed Pacific Rim, but I'm kind of with you, Courtney, in the sense that it's a bit overrated. The kaiju battles and the robot battles themselves are an incomprehensible mess most of the time. It just seems like an es- it's like a small-scale escalation of boss battles until they have to go underwater and blow up the biggest, baddest boss or whatever. So, keeping things with the giant god warrior appears in Tokyo, motif more specifically, it's that playfulness that I enjoy, and I like feeling adrift without knowing the language, without actually being able to understand what is being said, because I'm just focused on the technique and and kind of the weird otherworldliness of the animation itself. So, when everything does descend. I'm sitting here helplessly trying to understand the words, and that fuels into the overall helplessness of, well, what the heck am I going to do if something like this appears? Am I going to run? (laughs) And one of the things that you were mentioning, too, in terms of, like, the people's reaction when it appears, which is not given a whole lot of screen time, but most of the people, if not all of them, are stills, I think. Like, I think they're actually almost, it looked like they're actually rendered as stills. So you get this wall of people in the foreground, their hands up and, you know, looking out into the distance, or a lot of them, like, have their phones up and they're following this creature. But it is interesting that, like, the human element exists to the extent that there's the voiceover and then there's these people who seem to be experiencing the event through some kind of mediation, and then they're just all gone, you know? <laughs> like, so the so the apocalyptic nature of the, of the ending has, in a way, like an anticlimactic effect that I thought was interesting. I liked this aspect of it, is when all the explosions were happening, the technical design, because I was trying to decipher how much of it was CG and how much of it was using models, because it looked like they were using models for certain parts, but even when as the explosions were happening, similar to what you were referencing, I was like, wow, the streets were pretty clear at that point. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, society just magically took off running and no one was around. But I guess if they were using miniatures, it makes much more sense. So from a technical standpoint, I thought it was fine. But I wanted to know more. Because even the opening sequence, which I'm assuming was like a Facebook or something that they the citizens were on. Again, even a little insight into that would have helped me a bit more than opposed to seeing something that was cool to look at but didn't really speak to me at all. That's fair, and I think that's kind of where the dark joke aspect comes into play. God thing appears, starts blowing up stuff. Well, might as well text about it, because what the hell else are we going to (laughs) do? But I kind of get what you're saying, and I do think it does speak at least to the strength that it has, that it could be seen as a jumping board into other stuff, which I guess if you just want to follow Anno on, you can go back and watch Evangelion, and that'll be its own bundle of psychosis. 
But I see what you mean. I, I do really enjoy this, and, and I like feeling adrift, but it is something that I could see myself enjoying having more backbone and so forth. So with Giant God Warrior appears in Tokyo out of the way, and hopefully that'll be the last time I'll have to say that this podcast, we have another... <laughs> I just realized we have another longly titled short to discuss... I'm really glad you dug this one up, Courtney. So why don't you tell us a bit about yours? The short I picked is called Everything and Everything and Everything. It was directed by Alberto Roldan, and I believe it's a 2014 short starring Shane Carruth, who we're going to be discussing more um, with Upstream Color. But he plays a man by the name of Morgan who has no real direction in life until a glowing blue triangle thing appears in one of his bedrooms and starts popping out doorknobs of various varieties and morgan soon decides that hey you know as with most things when you see something strange let's try and make money off of it and sets up this whole doorknob business and the entire short is basically one big commentary on consumerism corporate greed and showing how all the aspects of life, even the strange or surreal or novel, we find a way to destroy with our uh, greed. Shane Carruth seems drawn either as an actor like he is here, or as a director and writer in his own right, in how he seems drawn to work that takes the mystical or takes the like experimentally scientific or just takes the obscenely weird and turns it into some kind of critique on, like, capital nature at large. Because Primer is a time travel story that basically ends with one guy reversing a situation to just try and get the girl and be a hero, and other versions of the guy trying to make money off of this time travel. So there was, like, it, it seemed... When it shifted gears, I thought it was going into some kind of farce mode, and I was really happy that that was the case. Because, Kyle, one of the things I was actually thinking about watching this when it shifted into that farce mode, when you have this extra-dimensional space producing doorknobs, was like more of a slapstick version of House of Leaves. I could absolutely see that. For me, part of what contributes to that is the way that I wasn't sure when he first encounters this strange blue pyramid thing, if we're supposed to understand him as encountering it then for the first time, or whether it's something that's always been there. And that ambiguity of this guy just kind of walking through his home with some general malaise and then encountering this strange thing with no explanation, I could definitely see see there being resonances with this kind of like weird, sudden, dark, surreal new potential of domestic spaces like you get with House of Leaves. I don't know if that's what... Well, it was that too, because like you got the House of Leaves for our listeners is a book by Mark Z. Danielewski that is kind of like an experimental meta text thing, like trying to push the David Foster Wallace style as far as it can go, both in presentation and writing. This short denied me one specific thing that I really, really wanted, because when it started popping those doorknobs out, I was thinking, since we're talking sci-fi, build a door or just build a shack and then stick the knob into it and see where it leads you. I understand that there was kind of a mundanity to it that was really humorous, and it works exceptionally well on that front. It's just, I also thought it was kind of funny that I was denied something that to me felt so obvious for sci-fi, and that's where the satirical element comes into play. Like, there's this fantastic thing that happens, it's maybe breaking me out of my depression. No, no it's not, time to make money. <laughs> Yeah, but that's one thing I loved about it, because when that first doorknob appears, he does go to one of the doors that was missing one, and you think, oh, he's going to turn it, and the portal's going to open. Nope, it's just a regular doorknob, but if you take off a doorknob, another one reappears. And I love that as he's building this business, and he's struggling to figure out the proper etiquette in terms of staffing, and do you give someone flowers when they have a, a baby, or what's the process, and like, how do you handle maternity leave? Isn't that like an HR thing? At no point do they ever ask why is this here or what's its purpose the only question that they ever ask is why is it producing less after they like drained it to, to death <laughs> that's a good point 
I like to the absurdity of his implied chain of thought, like like you're mentioning there. So like there's there's very little wonder to what is this thing or why is it producing doorknobs, you know, or like these weird antique doorknobs. At first, oh cool, I have a doorknob, I have this door that needs a doorknob put in, how convenient. And he, you know, puts the doorknob in, and then after that it suddenly turns into like inconvenience. This thing is throwing doorknobs out and they're clunking on the floor and that's obnoxious. And how that suddenly becomes a means to something as simple as making enough money to buy a keyboard so that he can learn to play music like his upstairs neighbor, right? And how that overtakes just this like very simple potential joy, right? That maybe learning how to music, play, how to learning how to play music will be the thing that kind of like lifts this cloud of malaise that seems to have that this guy's walking around in becomes an end in and of itself. Where then suddenly, once the machine does not produce enough doorknobs for this company to succeed, which was started purely as a means of finding some kind of joy, right? Then that suddenly undermines his whole life. I thought that was interesting, and to me, that was incredibly satisfying. I guess I never had as much of an expectation that it was going into a more sci-fi realm like you're talking about, Andrew. That resonated with me significantly, this kind of constant substitution of goals, all of which are kind of arbitrarily cho- chosen and given value. Well, it's kind of darkly fitting for the end, too, because the piano is playing that he hears upstairs is playing this rendition of, it sounds like Patsy Klein's uh, I Go Out Walking After Midnight. The end has like this really sharp bite to it because after he can't get his hands on something and it's difficult to actually figure out how to motivate yourself creatively and make music and so on to create even alternate renditions of popular songs that at the very end his source of potential happiness it's never actually happiness it's just potential happiness is completely taken away And his response is to bang on the ceiling and tell it to shut up. It almost feels like, you know, maybe that was what made you happy. It wasn't the music itself. You just wanted it to stop. So I I like what you're saying, where there's there's that sense of, like, if I can't have the satisfaction, then no one can, right? But that last scene where he's looking outside and the kids are happy playing with I think like a stick and a street sign right like which is kind of a cliche <laughs> yeah. like yeah, they're like oh yeah. kid you know the whole world is a playground right but there is something kind of I don't ironic is not quite the right word but there there is kind of like a continuation of that bite there in that image of just this kind of like seemingly received happiness right which is of, of kids playing where like they're just out there doing their thing and everything's great the one takeaway that we should all get from this film is if you're starting a business whether it be with alien technology or what have you make sure you put a good hr team in place because <laughs> when people leave it messes up your whole business so yeah courtney this was really cool uh, how'd you find it it played at two festivals that i was at back in 2014 and i missed it both times so it played at uh, the toronto international film festival and i heard great things about it and then it played we have a genre film festival up here called toronto after dark and it played there as well and for some reason i can't remember why i missed the night that it was playing so it had been on my radar for a while and then when it popped up online i made sure to watch it several times and gleefully so so that's how i knew about it and it was just one of those that i was thinking about um had i realized that you were going to pick a kaiju related short earlier i would have picked another one to kind of match yours again a, a more of a humorous take but then i thought since we're doing upstream color shank roof it's perfect synergy there's a pretty good humorous take on here too and that has actually got me curious because like one of the things we talked about way in the first episode was how these shorts would play in front of feature-length movies. And I'm really curious, what was the crowd reaction to this like? Because for me, it functioned more as like a comedy with a sharp edge. And Kyle, I think the same for you? For the most part. I, I focused on the satire of it, I think. From what I heard from all the buzz, is it was played a lot more for laughs. Like, there wasn't taken as, like, a serious or gloomy type of film. It was a comedy that had a kind of bittersweet ending to it. Now that I'm thinking of feature films that this might work for, there's enough of a weird edge to it that maybe it would work in front of, like, an animated film because there's enough absurdity with these people trying to make money off of doorknobs that a kid would probably find it silly. And there's not much in the way of, I guess, objectionable content or anything like that, but 
yeah, I could really see something like this really getting a crowd jazzed up to have some fun. I'd have to do some research, but I think for Toronto After Dark, they played it in front of, I want to say, a sci-fi film, possibly a comedy, but I think it was more of a sci-fi. For TIFF, they usually have short programs, so you go in and you'll see five or six different shorts based on whatever particular program, and they usually have about six or seven specially curated programs, so if you want, you can buy tickets to all seven, or you could see, for example, Program 3 and Program 8, that type of combination, and then just sit there for a good two hours and enjoy short goodness. Well, I loved it. Kyle, any final thoughts from you? No, I was also really glad that you picked that. I remember seeing, it wouldn't be like a trailer, but I remember seeing some kind of write-up about this a while ago, probably back when it was debuting at film festivals like you're talking about, and hadn't been able to find it then and had just kind of forgotten about it. So I was really excited as I realized that that's what this was watching it earlier today. So I was was glad to, to check that out. I'm glad you both enjoyed it. We're going to take a quick break to change reels, and then we'll come back with our feature film discussion of the day, Upstream Color. Our feature film this week is the 2013 film Upstream Color, a film written, directed, produced, edited, composed, designed, and casted by Shane Carruth. The film is a science fiction romance about two individuals who are mysteriously drawn together via a shared crime experience, if you will, that they both endured. There's also cute little pigs, drugs, a creepy sound engineer, and much more, but we'll definitely get to that in a bit. Andrew, why did you pick this film, and did you think my synopsis was succinct with what Upstream Color actually is? It's the best you can do with what you have. One of the reasons I picked Upstream Color is, you know, in recent years, and we've talked about this before, you know, Terrence Malick had a resurgence. Tree of Life, and To the Wonder, and all those, and to be honest, they've left me, for the most part, really cold. It strangely feels like a little more manufactured, even though I know that he has this floaty style and that a lot of his movies are made in the editing room and so on. So with Upstream Color, it's a feature-length experimental drama that works for me start to finish. And it's focusing on the experimental piece that I thought made it a really fitting part for changing reels. Because I, to be honest, cannot think of another movie that approaches upstream color. To your other question as to if the synopsis was appropriate enough, one of the things I find really cool about upstream color is how it almost seems to be a direct response from Carruth to the success he got from Primer. Because Primer is a great sci-fi film in its own right, but a lot of people got a little too obsessed with figuring it out, trying to get the timelines to match together and so on. And it speaks to Karuth's craftsmanship that you could get that sort of thing in order. But on the other hand, it makes it a little less satisfying when basically you're just kind of like going through the structure of something. And Upstream Color kneecaps that approach from the very beginning by essentially giving you like an ex- exposition visual guide in short snippets of how the drug works, how it gets that mental framework together to create those links and create puppets, essentially, that it really resists a construction approach going from one moment to the other. And it essentially asks you from the very beginning, that this is a story you need to feel through. The information that you need is right there, but everything else, from the editing to the soundtrack and every, all things Caruth, basically, it begs you to feel it instead of just trying to provide kind of like a rote construction. In terms of begging you to feel it, it also demands a lot from the audience. Like, it doesn't talk down to the audience, but at the same time, it's like, all right, I did my part, now you have to do your part. This is not a film that you go into and you're checking your cell phone or looking at Facebook updates or what have you. Like, you really need to pay attention because the first 20 minutes sets the stage, explains a lot, but because there's so little dialogue and there's so many strange things going on, like you're seeing how the drug is prepared and the effects it has on the kids, the mental state and whatnot, and how that will play into our protagonist, Chris. Like You really have to pay attention. And a lot of films nowadays are made and kind of designed for people to half watch and half 
look at their cell phones in the theaters. And this film, if you veer too far away from it, you will get lost. Kyle, how about you? I like your description that it's a movie that you have to kind of feel your way through. And I'm thinking, I don't know who said this, but there's the there's the quote, and I'm probably paraphrasing and butchering it, but something about all art aspires to the state of music or something along those lines. And this seems like a movie that in its visual language and in the editing language, it's it's doing that very much. And I think that's maybe my, maybe my way of describing what you're talking about in terms of kind of having to feel your way through it. You've got all these match cuts and you've got all these sound bridges that connect the two characters' sensory experiences of their own spaces with each other's across time. And then you've got later in the movie, a lot of those same techniques used to connect their experiences or various other kind of nameless characters' experiences with the sensory experiences of the sampler as he's going around and making this like music concrete where he's like mining individuals' memories and experiences for this music that he's making. So I think in addition to the fact that Carruth is scoring the film in that way, so like the score of the film kind of mirrors this interconnected experience that he's trying to convey visually. I think the fact that the visual style and the editing creates this almost like symphony kind of experience as you go through a lot of these audiovisual loops with the characters, that to me was really powerful the first time I watched it. And it was so powerful, I think that, and you kind of mentioned this as well, this is a movie that's complex to talk about, but to sit down and really describe literally what is happening is not itself complex. It's, it's complex and it's difficult to kind of describe how the movie gets there. But the first time that I watched it, I was so caught up just in kind of the rhythm of experiencing it and the visual and auditory rhythm of moving from one space to the next and one scene to the next, that there were things that I didn't catch. So when I watched it a second time, it was, and a third and a fourth and however many times I've watched it now, I think it's one of those movies that rewards rewatching, not because again, it's tremendously complex or because it's like a primer-esque mystery where you've got to figure it out, but because I think it commands your attention in very different ways. So for me, that ability to engage kind of on multiple different levels from an almost visceral level, the way that you kind of listen to and hear music, and then up to a more cerebral level, thinking about narratively what's going on in, in terms of visual and, and uh, compositional techniques, specifically what he's doing. It's a really rich, rewarding array of experiences that you can have with the movie, which which is really unique i think to, to see uh i don't i can't think of too many other filmmakers that i feel like have that much complexity built into to a movie that's also just very elegiac and, and beautiful so well there's something you said there that uh, kind of ties in with what courtney was getting at because when you talk about it being like a symphony and like the kind of people who go to symphonies the kind of people who listen to symphonies it's those do demand your attention you have to be in tune mm, that's true with what instruments come in what instruments go out and upstream color very much as it progresses goes in movements like a traditional symphony would and i can't honestly think of a moment in upstream color that isn't also without music it, it just seems scored yeah. perfectly from start to finish I think there's something interesting to, uh, and, and like you said, that's something I kind of remembered having noticed once you said it, the, the constant presence of music, by which I mean, I don't know that I would have been thinking of that even as we were talking about the soundtrack. But then once you mentioned that, I remembered one of the viewings at some point being like, wow, this is a movie that doesn't really like stop to have quiet dialogue scenes, right? Or there's not a whole lot uh, of scenes in this movie where it's just purely diegetic sound. And I think the way as the movie builds your understanding of this sampler character and this weird organism, which may be an alien organism, or I mean, I'm not sure how we're supposed to perceive the origins of that worm creature. But that idea of a continuum becomes so important, and that idea of kind of simultaneity uh, of experience becomes so important, and of memory and, and sensory experience, that it is really fitting, I think, that once the movie starts, you're kind of carried through every scene. And like you said, there are movements, but you're kind of carried through every scene and through the, the narrative development of the movie without much of a break. If you were sitting down and trying to like find a good stopping point in this movie, it would be tough. And not because it's some constant action or anything like that, but because it really does feel like this organic experience as you're going through it. You were talking about mining memory for in terms of the sampler and stuff, and the way how the film looks at shared memory and the stuff that we know, do we really know it, or was it that we heard someone else say it that becomes part of our memory? Like, you hear a story, and then eventually that story becomes your own story, even though you may not have experienced it. Like, I thought that was really well done, and even the simple way that the organism, I just took it as a 
scientists found a way to take a normal worm and through some chemicals create this experience. As we see in terms of how he was preparing the drink and ends up drugging Chris and basically uses a, a form of hypnosis to steal everything that she owns. I thought that was really fascinating. But the only thing I, the question I have about this film is at what point do you create something, embed it into somebody, and then have to find a person like the sampler who is going to be able to take the worm yeah. out and understand that the only way for this experiment to work is to take the worm that is now part of a symbiote of that person and then put it into a pig so that... <laughs> like, Every time I watch, I was like, who, at what point do, do you come across, like, does it cross your mind? This is how we need to execute the perfect crime. Science for <laughs> crime is fantastic because, you know, it's something that we don't always see in films. It's always about, like, the explosion techniques. But the more I see this film, this is a film that I love. I think it, visually it, it's wonderful and the sound design is fantastic. But I love how it takes such a broad and complex approach but yet tells it in a fairly conventional way like the first time you see it you're a little taken aback but the second third time you're like no it's a the story is is coherent you just need to focus this way how he creates and constructs it that's fantastic when you consider what the sampler is doing how he's essentially mining these people's memories without their consent he's mining their feelings without their consent and one of the great things about Upstream Color is how it does show the effects of that. Like, one of the most effective sequences when we get a sense of how the sampler is moving from person to person to feel things is when there's the couple that it looks like the man was someone who was under the influence of the mind control drug, was robbed. And the depression that his wife falls under because he's now so distant, having this experience that he can't explain to her. And their relationship is kind of mirrored in the, the main relationship between Chris and then Caruth's character, Jeff. They're having the same experience, but when they're trying to mediate it through language, they're still getting confused because they can't decide which one or the other had this, or why are you finishing my stories? These are my stories. That sort of ephemeral feeling of connecting with someone but not understanding why or maybe not necessarily wanting to. So when I think of the pigs, you know, how they thought of transferring the worm from the human to pig host, it's something to, as an audience member, grab onto sympathetically. We can also talk, you know, structural-wise about how the use of corridors and the shots and them creating these really scary moments of, of people feeling trapped in their bodies, but also trapped in these situations that they can't understand. But just on that very base emotional level, we see people being taken advantage of, and then we also think of cattle. I know cattle is usually in relation to cows, but... These things that are there provide nourishment to others, only in this case it's emotions and inspiration instead of meat and nourishment. That attention to the improvised economy that this character of the sampler and this thief character, you know, the one that's making and the drug and, and is, you know, extracting the drug, however that's working and is drugging people and cleaning out their bank accounts and everything. That attention to the economy that they have set up without really explaining it, Courtney, like you're saying, like one of the weirdest things about this movie is that, yeah, in the background prior to the film, presumably somebody has figured out whatever this organism or this drug that the thief is using, they've, they've figured it out, they've figured out how to use it, they've figured out how to monetize it into this scheme, and then they happen to come across this telepathic farmer who, you know, who can, because of that, tap into this network of, of memories and experience. It's so bizarre. Uh, and the way that he presents that and you understand what's happening without him having to really sit down and lay it out for you, I think is interesting in and of itself for the sci-fi elements. But the fact that there is that that strange economy there, and this is not like a movie of, like that has some statement about capitalism or labor or anything like that, but there is an undercurrent there that's really interesting in terms of how there is this like affective work or this affective labor that's coming from these people who have been traumatized. And the character of the sampler, they don't spend a lot of time on this, but he's literally mining that for monetary gain. He's making CDs that he's selling of, of music concrete CDs that he's selling based on these people's emotional pain, right? And I think that's interesting. And I think that's another 
indicator of kind of like the richness of a movie like this that that's not how i would describe this movie to somebody based on my first or second or third impression but there's so much there and how the movie is thinking not just about trauma but about commodifying affective labor and, and emotion that it has kind of like a, a weirdly revolutionary message when you get to the end again i don't think that's consciously what he's doing i don't think he means it to be a, a political film but there's definitely some interesting stuff going on there as well on top of everything else and getting to the aspect of trauma, Amy Siemens, uh, she's she's fantastic in this film. And I like that Caruth lets her be the lead and the one who does most of the heavy lifting in terms of figuring out what's going on and being able to track down the sampler. Because if you think of all the stuff that Caruth is doing in this film in terms of like composing, writing, directing, he could have easily just made this film all about him, had it turn into a bandy project. But I love that his character is pretty much a supporting character to her. And Chris is the one who we see, she's the one that takes us through the process of what happens when people are drugged and have their entire mental framework reworked in their fortunes stolen and then we have to see what she's going through with the whole experiencing pregnancy even though she's not really pregnant the length of trauma that she goes through i thought was fascinating i thought she did a really good job in that role we were talking earlier about how there's no easy place to stop her performance is one of the reasons that i actually have a place i have to stop this was probably my fifth time watching it. It was my fifth or sixth. And the kind of three quarters of the way through, when they're having the really intense sequence of her feeling the pain of losing her kids and him feeling the pain of helplessness not being able to protect the kids or her, her desperation, she turns it on so quickly and so intensely that that is my cue to stop. I have to pause this movie, and I have to go walk a bit, and then I have to come back to it. Because the first two times I watched this, I was just too much of a wreck afterwards. And yes, there is a, a lot of credit to Caruth there, with the way that he edits and scores the moments so that the pain of both is experienced simultaneously, both of the pigs and of Chris and Jeff. But her desperation at that point, and the way that they talk to each other, it's animalistic in a way that we don't usually expect. Like, when we think of animalism in performances, we think maybe more uh, Leo DiCaprio in The Revenant, that sort of desperate fight in nature, getting dirty with nature, and everything like that. But there's that emotional desperation, and it comes across in their voices when she is stuttering and then angrily getting something out, like, I can't find them. I, I can't find them. And then Caruth is more an anchor for her performance in those moments, because I also love how he's desperately looking for an answer. Where are we going? Home? Chris, home, are we going home? Home? And when we see our pets, or when we see animals struggling or sad, their desperation, you know, running around the house or whining or anything like that, Caruth anchors everything around her. It's her loneliness, her desperation, but then just her random spurts of uncontrollable emotion that she's consciously trying to keep together but can't, and it's because of her performance that I feel so deeply affected, and the first two times I watched this, I just, I could not stop crying from that point to the end of the movie, and I've gotten to a, a space personally where I just have to stop when that scene is coming because of her performance and, and how she collects all of these triggers into this animalistic burst of sadness and desperation. And there's interesting things going on, too, in that scene in terms of how he deals with the gendered reactions, right? There's there's a detail uh, after they get home where Caruth's character just goes down and starts chopping down a tree in the backyard. This moment that that's absurd, given the context in a way that could be funny if it wasn't handled very deftly. But the way he projects out this irrational anger, you can see it on his face that he also doesn't really understand what's happening. He just needs to destroy something, right? Or he just needs you know, he there has to have some outlet, and in this moment, it's going to be this tree that he pulls out of the ground. That is a really complicated kind of centerpiece of the movie. 
even with that tree moment, Karuf does such a good job with paralleling it with the story of the two pigs trying to be forced to be separated, which they don't go for, and then also having their children abducted and the rage that obviously those animals might feel, although we never really think about it with, when you think of animals. You see piglets, or if your dog has or cat has babies, you just think, oh, great, sell it to the neighbors, but you don't actually think of, like, animals having that type of emotional attachment so i thought that was interesting and it's one of those films that i remember when i first saw this i think they had one or two screenings in town and the one that i went to karuf did a skype q a and i just remember thinking how long it probably took him to get this film made because this is not a film that you can easily go up to a financer and say all right here's the premise there's gonna be drugs pigs <laughs> sampler give me x amount of dollars right and even something with primer all the the acclaim that he had you know i would love to see him make more films but i wonder if people are going to be willing to continue to take a chance on him you know I, I hope so but in the industry that's so consumed with the financial bottom line it'd be a shame if he stopped making films he does have a new movie coming out and i can't remember off the top of my head where it's at in production but in typical form he hasn't said a whole lot about it he's signed on a number of actors and i think he's kind of started with this film and primer to develop a cultural capital there but it's called the modern ocean and the only thing he said about it is that it's about trade routes and like the establishment of trade routes uh i think in the, in the atlantic maybe which seems appropriately vague for <laughs> in terms of in terms of how much I want to know about his next movie as a side note that may not be interesting for anyone other than people who are fairly obsessed with Shane Carruth which I am uh, he had a, a movie that he tried yeah he had a movie he tried to do after primary called a topiary that you can find the script online semi-clandestinely there was to be like a semi-big budget action adventure kind of movie involving kids and it has shades of spielberg and, and is similarly difficult to describe or explain and if you watch in upstream color the, the first scene where we inter- where we're introduced to chris while she's at work she's doing some animation on a computer she's animating this strange like dinosaur looking creature i similarly Courtney, I went to a screening of this movie at the Music Box in Chicago when he was touring with it. And so he was there and answered questions. And some of the visual design and CGI work that he learned to do for this movie, Atopiary, that he ended up not being able to get financed because it was to be this kind of massive budget movie and seems like it was kind of just like this heartbreaking interaction with Hollywood that didn't go well. One of his uh, CGI tests is what you're seeing on Chris's computer in that scene where, she, where some, one of the creatures that was going to be in this movie is, is what she's animating there. The reason I'm bringing all that up, other than just that it was interesting to me, he seems to have this orientation around philosophical notions of sci-fi, where I would call upstream color a sci-fi, I would call primer a sci-fi, but they don't really fit into the conventional tropes of sci-fi. Like primer, I guess, sort of does. We can call it a time travel movie. I don't know what we would call upstream color in terms of like a subgenre of sci-fi, but he seems interested in like the spectacular or fantastic possibilities of sci-fi movies to get at these more philosophical or experiential or kind of phenomenological questions. And I hope that he keeps doing that because I, I don't think there's a lot of people who have the polymathic ability to finance and completely make and distribute a movie of their own vision like that. Yeah, he would almost need to, and I, I hate to say this, but I would love to see him take a mainstream property. Because I think he's the type of director, kind of like how we were talking about with Danny Villeneuve and Arrival, or where you could take a property that would have mainstream appeal, but still keep your unique voice, even just to give him a little extra capital, because he's already got the indie cred. If he could show that he could even do mainstream things while still keeping his integrity as an artist, I think that would go a long way. Because he's a filmmaker that I, I, I wish more people knew of. And I wish Upstream Color was a film that more people discovered. I do wish more people knew of him, too, but also to, like, actually talk about these movies in that experiential way that you were discussing, Kyle, because one of the most exhausting things you can do as a cineast is maybe sit down with someone and say, what is sci-fi or what is acceptable sci-fi? <laughs> it's like trying to sit down and talk with ten different groups of metalhead and ask them, what is the true metal? And I, I like that Karut's movies navigate that uncomfortable philosophical edge of sci-fi because it's not outside the realm of possibility that there can be a chemical out there that allows us to experience things with each other. We already know the effects that pheromones have 
on other people, and we're, okay, saying that we know the full effects, that is way off, but we have a lot of research into shared experiences, and then the way that communally we can create memories together, that all of the things in both Primer and Upstream Color, they're built on science. It's pushing things that step further, and saying, okay, this is what we know here's a hypothesis, and then him being able to actually act on that hypothesis and create this, <laughs> these holistic masterpieces that are still in debt to science, that the fiction aspect of it, it just flows through so beautifully. And, and that's kind of where I'm thinking maybe his training as a mathematician, I think he's got his PhD more in math than anything related to, you know, film work or anything like that. But to have that mind and then have that transfer over to arts instead of research and so on, it, it kind of makes me think of like fractals and how that can create beautiful art that spirals out forever. I don't think Primer is a fractal of beauty. I think it's a great movie, but Upstream Color, if you told me a mathematician made this, and I thought about fractals on top of that, it works perfectly. And Karuth, probably because of his math-based, holistic approach to emotion, that's kind of how he's become a director's director in a way, because <laughs> Steven Soderbergh called him the illegitimate offspring of David Lynch and James Cameron. <laughs> I kind of see that. There's something abstract to his movies that get to a core of being alive that Lynch, you know, more or less explores the nightmare side of, but Carruth, go back to what you were saying earlier, Kyle, there is a revolutionary love aspect to Upstream Color that, if marred with the sensibilities of someone like James Cameron, who's able to navigate technology and then create these blockbusters, not unlike Carruth, but just on a very smaller scale for Carruth. He's just magnificent, and... Well, there is something, too, in terms of the way that you're talking about upstream color and thinking in terms of, like, fractals. I like that idea, too. I don't know if narratively is the right word, or maybe thematically, or but, but somewhere in its concern with that kind of connectivity. And, and like you said, like that sense of experiencing things with each other. I think that's, and again, I don't think this is a conscious thing that he sat down and said, like, I'm going to make a movie that reflects our contemporary technological experience or anything like that. But I think there is a, a resonance with the way that we experience the world through technology now, right? Where we have your computer screen and your phone screen, and we're constantly experiencing things through all these different layers of social media. And our attention is fragmented outward, and we're experiencing things on kind of different levels of time where we experience things going on in other people's lives as they display them on our own time frame. And so I think there is this weird kind of potentially like sense of simultaneity or, or expanded experience if you think about the way that we're subtly trained to look at the rest of the world through technology that upstream color and maybe even primer and again this is kind of what i was trying to articulate at the beginning i think a number of other more philosophical independent sci-fi out there is doing i don't think he's consciously interjecting into that or pioneering anything there, but I think his movies seem concerned with or connected to that type of experience just rendered in a much more poetic way. When you talk about, you know, consciously versus unconsciously trying to do these things, I think that Carruth has learned to trust that unconscious part of himself that has the map mind and then just kind of goes and puts the structure or works towards the structure and when we talk about other like independent sci-fi-minded movies, a good unconscious version and then a conscious example, when I said earlier about how I love Another Earth but I hate I Origins, Another Earth is not too dissimilar, at least in terms of construction, to Upstream Color. It definitely has an omnipresent life about it. And then I Origins, it's more consciously creating this we are all connected tapestry mm -hmm. instead of allowing the soundtrack and the visuals and the editing and all that to flow together. So, Courtney, what do you think about all this? 
when Kyle was talking about the trained experience and how we're trained in technology to share all these moments, like a light bulb went off in my head. It's like, oh, wait, you know, I never actually thought of it from a technology standpoint. And especially with the world we live in today, Upstream Color, if you look at it from that point of view, is actually very current and almost ahead of its time in terms of how technology and our connection with it is shaping everything from our daily lives to, to politics and stuff. And even if you think about all the individuals that suffered having their minds invaded and their financial stuff stolen from the thief. It's no different than people breaking into Xbox accounts or PlayStation or Yahoo or whatever and taking credit card information and, and what have you. You know, like I didn't watching it the I don't know how many times I've seen this film now, I didn't even connect it to modern day technology and that adds like a whole new other layer. I'm like, oh I gotta go back and watch this film again. And it also kind of shows how we shouldn't take that kind of theft for granted because I could see someone kind of callously looking at upstream color and going, oh, he's just feeling what they're feeling, whatever. For some people, those are intimate acquisitions. Like, I very rarely have as strong a connection with a video game, for example, to kind of take your Xbox account. But for some folks, that's that's an intimate experience. You know, it's, it's a physical controller. You've got an on-screen representation of something that abstractly you are connecting to. And upstream color, there is nothing video game-wise I would possibly come close to comparing it to, but it has that loving quality to it that whatever you connect to, be it a video game, music, piece of visual art, piece of written art, anything, it's not for mocking. We all have our reasons for loving things, and it's really hard to articulate that. I'm glad that we actually talked so specifically about Upstream Color in terms of its effect and its construction before we talk kind of globally, because it just shows how many frames we can put this in or how many different ways we can adjust it, because it does speak to something universal, even though it's so bizarrely specific with its pigs and tree chopping and worms and so on. Without just kind of regurgitating or reframing what you just said, I, I do think that's one of the things that makes this more rewarding of a movie than Primer. You mentioned at the beginning that there is this divide between those, and I think you connected that back to the like the experimental nature of Upstream Color. There is a way, I think, too, in which Upstream Color walks through this trauma process and reaches kind of a, a catharsis at the end through Chris, which, Courtney, going back to the way that you're saying the movie is framed around her and Kurdu's character is kind of there in support of her journey through the trauma that she experiences at the beginning. It can work, not metaphorically, but it can work as a number of different types of experiences, if that makes sense, without you needing to like contrive a particular allegory or metaphor through which you're going to experience the movie. You mentioned, was it Soderbergh who you said called Carutha? The illegitimate uh, offspring of Lynch and, okay. and uh, James Cameron, yes. Which I had heard before, and I don't know why it had never struck me. I know David Lynch is a figure that people seem to either love or hate, and I've always been really fascinated with him. And one of the things that fascinates me about Lynch is that when he's at his best, his movies provide what seem to be thoughtful enough sets of symbols and visual and narrative reference points that resonate with each other in interesting enough ways where it seems that there's some intentionality there where you can kind of decode what a Lynch movie or project or work means, but is also open enough where you can't ever find one decisive way of decoding it. What might be interesting to me about Upstream Color is it's almost the inverse of that. Like there are a number of ways that you can read the movie and they are demonstratively correct in terms of what you're experiencing, but it's just so open in terms of what you can take from it, which I think is very rare. I think that's a perfect way to end this episode. Kyle, since you are our guest, where can folks reach you if they want to find out more about you or hear more of your thoughts on this film or any other films? <laughs> that's a good question. Do you have like uh, a Twitter account or something? I do not. You liar. I follow um, at Kyle Miner. We can use that. And they'll, they'll go there and they'll see the wasteland that is, that is my <laughs> So what you're Trump, saying is Trump, you're, Trump, you're avoiding all shared forms of experience to, to protect <laughs> yes. yourself, to tie sure. it in perfectly. That's yeah. all right. We'll, we'll take that. Andrew, what about you? Where can folks reach you? You can, of course, reach me at Can't Stop Drew. And uh, I know Kyle talks about the, the wasteland that is his Twitter, but we'd be happy to pass along messages as well so they could shoot us an email 
at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. And Courtney, how about your own little bulletin board of potentially shared connections? They can always reach us on the Twitter account um, at changingreelsac. You can reach me personally on Twitter at smallmind. We also have a Facebook page, and I think those are the main areas that you can reach us. And as usual, I like to always take a minute just before we end to thank our listeners from all over the world. Hopefully get to the point where the list will get so long that we won't even do it, but I'm going to just pick out five from recent listeners, according to our little statistics. And I want to thank those in Mexico, Italy, Austria, India, and Australia for tuning into our show. Find us on iTunes, rate us. We'd love the feedback. Kyle, thank you for joining us. Any notes you'd like to leave us out with? No, thank you guys for having me. This was great. All right. Well, for Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.